Our Father, we look forward to that day when Jesus, who has been given the name above all names, who is Lord of all lords, King of all kings, that his name will be fully and totally exalted and given the honor that it's due. We long for that day, but we know that you have us here and you've not taken us home to glory because you're not willing that any should perish, but that for all to come to repentance. And you want to be honored and glorified by our lives, by our work, by our families, and certainly by our witness. So we thank you for the strength that you give us as we feed on the word, that as weak people, you strengthen us like newborn babes who long for the pure milk of the word, that we can grow in respect to our salvation. You told us that in the exercise of your will, you brought us forth by the word of truth. Thank you for your holy word that was like seed that brought a second birth. And thank you that as saved people who have met you, that we are to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, we are to receive the word implanted, that we might grow, that we might be sanctified in our souls. So if there's any filth in our hearts today that is blocking the Spirit of God from teaching us and taking the Word that we will study and implanting it deep in us to change us, then we ask that you would bring that to mind that we might confess it and forsake it. You promised that when we confess our sins that you are both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. Now, Father, we confess that, as your son said, without him we can do nothing. We can't even study the Bible in dependence on our minds alone. But we need our teacher, the Spirit of God, and we pray that he would work in our midst today to all who are listening, wherever they may be, to those who need the Savior, that today might be a turning point, that someone somewhere would call upon Christ in faith. We think of the heartache that some parts of our nation know this morning, Americans in Puerto Rico and Houston, and even in other countries of the world, people who seemingly have lost everything. We ask that the church would rise up, that we would be viable witnesses that we might love both in deed and yet at the same time preach the word. So use the turbulence of our day for the body of Christ to speak freely and and clearly and by the power of the Spirit. May he give me that power today. Holy Spirit, have your way in me. Fill me and anoint me and use me, I pray, in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Would you take the Word of God this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 6 as we begin a new chapter on the horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, the Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And after the church is removed, a seven-year-plus period is going to begin, and it's going to be a time on earth like the world has never seen or experienced before. It is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that you might think I'm exaggerating. But Jesus, who is incarnate truth, said this, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, Jesus could never exaggerate. Everything he said was absolutely true. 
And that's an incredible prophecy that he makes when you consider all the holocausts, all the famines, all the diseases, all the earthquakes, all the hurricanes, all the tsunamis that have come across our world. When you think of all the atrocities that have taken place in human history since the creation of Adam and Eve, and yet Jesus said you can take all of that and it doesn't even begin to compare to what is in front of us. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking of this time frame, said, ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah reminds us that the tribulation period will be so bad that men will wrap their arms around themselves like a a woman giving birth and that everyone's face will turn pale and ashen gray because the events that are going to take place are so utterly horrible. And of course, in that context, he's relating them not just to the world, but also to the nation of Israel. In Daniel, the 12th chapter, We studied it. The prophet Daniel were given these words by Michael the archangel. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, speaking of Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So what we begin today in the sixth chapter of the Revelation all the way through the 19th chapter really pictures a time of unspeakable horror. Now, for the benefit of those joining us for the first time and for the rest of us, because I want you to be able to think your way all the way through Revelation, that when we are done with the book of Revelation, you can walk through in your mind chapter by chapter. And if there's any book you'd like to get under your belt, it ought to be this one, because God promises a special blessing for those who would hear and heed the book of the Revelation. Now, we've seen in Revelation 1-7 that the theme of the book is He is coming with the clouds. And we've also learned that the outline of the book is given to us by God, I think largely so we would not misinterpret the book. Revelation 1-19, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things that are, that's the present, the present day as John was living, and so he writes of seven literal actual churches that were in existence and functioning. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things. So starting in chapter 4 all the way through 22, the Apostle Paul writes about the things that will take place, the Apostle John, after these things. And so notice how chapter 4 and verse 1 begins after these things, just so we couldn't miss it, that this is the third section of the Revelation. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. When we're in the fourth chapter, we saw that open door, that this is the time that God will call up the church. I saw a door open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. So when the church is brought up through that open door into heaven, all the way through the rest of the revelation, you see a picture of what will happen after the rapture of the church. We saw the 24 elders, that that was a representative number used in other places in Scripture of a mass of people. So it's not by accident that God describes 24 elders who are representative of the raptured church. And so from chapters 6 through 19, other than the fact that there are saints in heaven, 
believers who are able to view what God is unfolding in heaven, the church is not mentioned. The seven churches of the Revelation are gone and you do not see the church again until Jesus comes back in glory. Remember, the rapture and the second coming, second coming of Christ are two distinct events. It is possible for you to not be ready and to miss the rapture. It is impossible for you to miss the second coming of Christ. One, we meet the Lord in the air. He will come for us. I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you again to myself, that where I am, you may be. That's the rapture. But at the second coming, he comes to the earth, literally to the Mount of Olives, where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. So in chapter four, we saw God the Father sitting on the throne. We saw heaven filled with praises to him for his glory, for his power, for his creation, but also an acknowledgement that he has the right to administer justice as the judge of the world. And so John is taken to heaven and he's given a front row seat. And if you know Christ today, you'll be there with John. He is picturing what is actually happening in the future. And if you are a believer then you will be raptured and you will literally see those events unfold. And so chapter five, we move from God the Father on the throne. We're still in the same courtroom, but we also see the Lamb, Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. And if you were with us in our last three sessions of the Revelation, we saw that it's just been glorious, God's people worshiping with the angels in heaven. Chapter five signals us that a change is about to happen. Look at 5 and verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now remember, we identified the Father as the one sitting on the throne, and he has in his hand a scroll, as the NASB puts in the margin. It's not a book like you're holding. It's a scroll. It's no ordinary scroll. It is a seven-sealed scroll. It's what, what you might call the title deed of the world. It's like a last will and testament that people would write in the first century. They were distinguished as seven seal scrolls. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, we've seen that God originally planned for Adam to rule and reign the earth. But through his disobedience, he lost that right to rule. And so the God of this world with a small g, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 designates him, is the evil one, Satan. And so it is a real legitimate offer that Satan makes Jesus in the wilderness when he says, you bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Satan temporarily has control of them. And so he sees this title deed to the earth and he wants to know who is worthy. And John's perception is he doesn't know who can take that title deed. And so he begins to weep uncontrollably. But then the Father hands the deed to God the Son, who with his own blood redeemed not only every born-again, blood-bought child of God, though he made a provision for all, but he also redeemed the creation that fell when man fell. This world, as beautiful as it is in some places, is not the way God originally intended it. And we've seen some of that in the last week by some of the climactic events that are taking place on the planet. 
So this is a seven-sealed scroll. We saw not a scroll with seven seals all on the outside, but you undo a seal, you unroll it, you undo another seal, you unroll it, and it is progressively unfolded. And that's very important as we come later to the trumpet in the bold judgments. So chapters 6 through 19 are a picture of what Revelation 6 calls the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6 is somewhat of a shock to the senses because we move from this scene in heaven where there's all this praising and shouting to a scene on the earth of divine wrath where there is pain and suffering. So chapter 6 begins the scenes of judgment with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Let's read about the four horsemen by reading the first eight verses. Follow along. Then I saw the Lamb. I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come, I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword with famine and with pestilence by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, beginning with these eight verses, we have the first four of the seven seals in this scroll that has been handed to Christ, and it begins to unfold them one at a time. These seals are broken and opened, and judgments come upon the earth. Now, the first six seals take place in the first half of the tribulation period. The tribulation, both by Daniel the prophet, by Jesus, and by the revelation, is broken into two even halves of three and a half years each. Let me give you kind of the big schematic. If you'll bring up the next slide right now, we're in the church age. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church is a unique entity that the Bible teaches began on the day of Pentecost. But the church age will end when the church is raptured. Some people say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. It is in the Latin Bible. It's from the Greek, from the Latin word rapto, the Latin Bible used for over a thousand years. For the most part, about the only translation that God's people had. And so the church is caught up. I don't care if you call it the rapture, the harpazo, the catching up. We shall all be caught up. It's the word rapture. And shortly after, a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation period begins. The first half is tribulation. The second half is even greater tribulation. But all seven years, we will see in the sixth chapter, are called the Great Tribulation period. It culminates with the second coming. Jesus will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. And at the end of the millennium, what the second Adam does that the first Adam should have done, we will enter into the eternal state. Now, the world 
that God's that the the world that the people will be in after the rapture will be a world without Christians. Now there are saints who come to faith during the tribulation. They're not church saints. We will see they are tribulation saints. And most of them are actually martyred during that seven-year time frame in history. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Now the Lamb here in verse 1, whom we studied in chapter 5, is none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John uniquely uses the expression, the Lamb, to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. So he takes the seven-sealed seven scroll. And we're told when he broke the first of the seven uh, seals, John writes, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I hope you remember the four living creatures. We were first introduced to them in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 5. Now, if you look back at chapter 4, turn back a page or so, chapter 4 in verse 6, notice what we are told. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. This is one of those places where it seems like human vocabulary fails. And John is trying to describe that awesome shimmering floor there in the throne room of God. He says it is like, he uses a simile, it is like crystal. Of course, a good architect will often put a, a fountain or a pool of water in front of a, a building to immediately grab your attention and reflecting during the day to double its beauty and to light it up and to multiply it at night. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The old King James says four beasts. The new King James says four living creatures like most of the translations you have in your lap. This is not some hideous beast like the Antichrist. In fact, there's an entirely distinctly different word that's translated beast that's used to describe him. These are four zoa, four living creatures. And of course, they are also described in the prophet Ezekiel, the first chapter, where there they are called cherubim. Cherubim, much like angels today, other angels, there's a lot of different classes of angels, they can change their appearance at will. An angel could be uh, worshiping with us. We know in the invisible realm, 1 Corinthians 11, there's angels that are here today. They're watching you. They're learning. Our audience is a lot bigger than most of us realize. But it's possible that there could be an angel sitting near you, that you will greet one today before the day is over, that we can entertain angels unaware. But there's one class of high angels that are known as cherubim. Look at Revelation 4, verse 7. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face of that of a man, and the fourth creature like that of a flying eagle. These four living creatures, remember, are going to administer the first four seals of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you don't have it written out there, next to verse 7, write Ezekiel 1, 10, and 11. Ezekiel 1, 10, and 11. There the prophet said, as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion, on the right and on the face, and on the right and the face of a bull on the left. All four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. So both Ezekiel and John, and again, they can manifest themselves in different ways, but we see a consistency that these 
class of angels had the face of a lion, an ox, an eagle, or a man. And those faces are associated with God's dealing with uh, humans in this world. Eyes symbolize discernment or knowledge in Scripture. Wings symbolize the, the great speed that these angelic creatures can travel. Faces symbolize various qualities in God's creation. And the lion speaks of power. And we also saw that these are the four banners around the tabernacle that God's people, Israel, uh, camped around, and these four pictures are given in the four Gospels of Christ. You might want to go back and listen to that message. Look at verse 8 now of Revelation 4. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. In one word, what is God like? He is holy. Isaiah 6.3, when he has a vision of God, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And that's what John is saying here. He's watching these four living creatures affirm the absolute holiness of God. Why three times? Because we've seen this was a Trinitarian scene in this throne room. We saw God the Father sitting on the throne, God the Son at His right hand, and the seven spirits, which are the seven spirits of God, the seven ministries of God the Spirit. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. And if there's anything that will grip you, that will grab you when you go to heaven. Initially, it will be the absolute holiness of God. We teach our children that sin is anything that you say, do, or think that is contrary to God's will. We should equally teach them that everything that God said, thought, and does is right and perfect because He is absolutely holy. And if we've been born again, He calls us to share in that character. So here in Revelation 6, verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, come. This voice of thunder is a voice of, of majesty and power, and it speaks with great authority. And when the Lamb breaks the first seal, this the noise of thunder, some of your translations say, I prefer more literally the voice of thunder because it's more than just noise. It, it speaks a truth that God wants his people there in heaven to see and to appreciate. Just like thunder comes before a great storm. This is heavenly thunder. And there is a storm that is coming that is about to be unleashed like the world has never, ever seen. And so the first of these four living creatures steps out and he gives this command, come with this voice of authority. And the first seal releases the first rider of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, some have carelessly identified the first horseman as the Lord Jesus himself because you will see in Revelation 19, Jesus coming back on a white horse. So they assume this is one and the same. No, this is not the Lord Jesus. We will see this is the Antichrist. And so there are five characteristics that are given to this person or that describe this person that are very different from that of the Lord Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first concerns the weapon of the white horse rider. Let's think first about the weapon of the white horse rider. We read here in verse 2, I looked, and behold, a white horse... 
And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So we're told the horse is white, and the rider is armed with a bow, and he's wearing a crown. So who is he? Well, the question has been debated for centuries, and unfortunately, very often the prerequisites and the preconceptions that you approach the book of Revelation will typically determine who you think this rider is. So let me pause for a moment, and I want you to pay attention. You are all theologians. The question is, what kind of a theologian are you? Every every one of us have a theology of God, a knowledge of God. It's either right or it's inaccurate. And so there were no seminaries in the early centuries of the church. The church, the local church, was a seminary where God's people learned And I want you to learn this morning. So in the history of the church, there have been four approaches to the revelation. I briefly hit on this on the introduction, but I'm going to take time and hone it today because you're going to hear people sometimes teach the book of Revelation. You're going to say, where did they get that from? And they get it from a prerequisite in their theology that they begin with. The principles that someone uses for interpreting the Bible is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how you interpret the Bible. And so um, when you read various uh, commentaries on Revelation, the principle on how they interpret apocalyptic literature and times literature will determine what they're going to say. Now, John Calvin is an interesting man. You'll meet him in heaven, I have no doubt. But he was a confused little man on a lot of issues. And I know I've made some of my Reformed brothers mad in saying that. Interestingly, John Calvin wrote a commentary, and I have his full set, and I have his institutes, and I've read them. They don't just sit on my shelf. Calvin wrote a book, a commentary on every book of the Bible except the revelation, because he really didn't know what to do with it. And part of his problem is he used one principle for interpreting the rest of the Bible, but he used a different principle for interpreting the end times literature. And you can see some of these differences in two popular authors, one by the name of Tim LaHaye. Many of you know his name. He recently, in the last year, went to heaven his 90s. The other is Hank Hanegraaff. Tim LaHaye left the, wrote the Left Behind series describing the rapture of the church and those who are left behind. He understood that the events in the Revelation were future. Hank Hanegraaff wrote a book called The Apocalypse Code. Sometimes people call me in the Bible line and they say, well, what do you think of The Apocalypse Code? And of course, there's about 10 books by that title. So the question is, you know, which Apocalypse Code are you referring to? But Hanegraaff's book, The Apocalypse Code, is in response to the Left Behind series. And he says that all of the events in the Revelation took place before 70 A.D. So they come up with very different interpretations as they approach Revelation. So let me give you four approaches to the Revelation. You want to understand these. The first is called the idealist view, or what is sometimes called the spiritual view. The idealist view says that the book of Revelation is just a book of good and evil, that there's no time frame. It's not referring to events in the past. It's not referring to events in the future. It's just giving us spiritual principles for living. 
And so they approached the Bible allegorically. One of the uh, late church fathers, and he was unique in his own right, his name was Origen. And he came up with the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And unfortunately, Augustine adopted his view. When you allegorize a text of Scripture, you don't take it for its plain truth. You say, well, it says this, but this is what it really means. And of course, a lot of liberals in our day who at least say maybe, some of them, most just outright deny the authority of the Bible, but some who say it's inspired, they very typically interpret the Bible allegorically. Why? Because they can make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. And so the battles that we will see in the Revelation are not real, literal battles. Those are spiritual battles that the believer faces. And um, it, the, the, the various kingdoms are uh, satanically inspired political kingdoms, but not future kingdoms out there in the future. The problem with that right off is the book opens on the third verse by telling us that the Revelation is a prophecy. And the book ends in 22.18, a few verses before the close, and it tells us that this book is a prophecy. Prophecy is about the future. This is not some allegory. And I hope to demonstrate before we're done that the method of interpretation that this group uses, as the other two groups, denies the method that Jesus uses. How do we know which group is right? How do you know how to interpret the Bible? You know, some people say, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, sometimes it just is someone's interpretation, and it's the wrong interpretation. So how do you know to correctly interpret the Bible, especially end times futuristic literature? Well, you look for models, and God gave us models. The way Jesus interpreted prophecy, the way the apostles interacted with prophecy, the way we even saw the way Daniel acted, uh, entertained prophecy in the Old Testament. Remember, he's there in Babylon and he's reading Jeremiah, the 25th chapter that describes a 70-year period. When Jeremiah wrote it, it hadn't even happened yet. He's warning the southern two tribes that God is going to bring uh, the Babylonians and he's going to carry them away and into judgment. And he says that that carrying away period will be for 70 years. So Daniel's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, oh, we're in the 67th year. It's almost over. How did he believe that prophecy? Literally. And so if the prophets of old literally, plainly interpreted prophecy, if Jesus did it that way, if the apostles did it that way, that's how I'm going to take it, all right? Second, there's a second view called the preterist view. The word praetor is a Latin word that means past. And so the preterist view interprets the book of Revelation as it has already happened, that it's basically a history book, that all of the events described therein, like in the Olivet Discourse, are recording history that took place by the time the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, there are two types of preterists. There's a very small minority of them that are called full preterists, who believe that all of the prophecies have already taken place and that we're actually in heaven. Well, look, if I'm in heaven, God must have given me the ghetto section of it. I mean, um, but most of them are what we call partial preterists. And they say everything up until the second coming. No Orthodox Christian denies the second coming of Christ. That's a test of orthodoxy. They say all of the events with the exception of the literal, physical, actual second coming of Jesus have taken 
place. Of course, preterism, to be true, you have to date the book of Revelation before 70 AD, and they usually dated it 65. Now, the problem with that is the study that we did, the careful study, I gave seven one-hour-plus sermons on the seven churches. Some of you say, do you preach for over an hour? I do. You may have come to the wrong place today, but we are not looking for just warm bodies. We're looking for people who are serious about the things of God. And if we thin the crowd out, so be it. I am looking to make disciples and people who are serious about studying God's Word. When we studied those seven churches, we saw clearly they were not first-generational, but second-generational churches. Take the church in Ephesus. They are accused of leaving their first love, and they are accused of entertaining the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, listen. When Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, they're the healthiest church probably in all the New Testament. No, that's a second-generation church. We studied the church in Smyrna. That didn't even exist during Paul's lifetime. We studied the church at Laodicea, which three times in his letter to the Colossians, he commends as a great church. But we see in the Revelation, God rebukes that church because it's a second-generation church. So number one, the preterist view doesn't even fit the context of the book of Revelation itself. And another problem is that these events that are described in Revelation 6 through 19 are described in the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus sees them as being out there in the future. Um, Again, they spiritualize a lot of that. Take Matthew 24, 27. In the Olivet Discourse, we call it a discourse, a sermon that's given on the Mount of Olives, the mountain that Jesus ascended to heaven to, the mountain he's coming back to. It's kind of ground zero. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so preterists like Hank Hanegraaff says, well, this is a picture of the Roman army advancing on Jerusalem in 70 AD, and uh, they came from the west, but it doesn't work if you think about it because they come from the west to the east. History documents that. He should know better if he just read history a little bit. But what Jesus is describing is an event that goes east to west, not west to east. Not to mention, Jesus describes it as fast, like lightning, like a flash in the sky. The siege of Jerusalem was not fast. It began in 67, and it was three long years that the city was under siege and then conquered in 70 AD. Not to mention, when Titus comes and that temple ends up being destroyed, every stone torn apart, just as Jesus prophesied, When Titus comes, he doesn't commit the abomination of desolation on that temple, in that temple. That happens way out there in the future. Daniel puts it out in the future, as does the Lord Jesus. So this is not some history book. Now, I should say parenthetically that this view comes out of Roman Catholicism. Um, It's held by people like Hank Hanegraaff, some of you know R.C. Sproul. He holds a preterist view, and so he takes this very loose interpretation of the revelation. Uh, But Jesus spoke of a time frame where he said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. If this is history, there has never, ever, ever been a time in human history where you could describe the events that are taking place on planet Earth in this way. And so this is not history, this is still future. And again, this position overlooks the opening and the closing verses that call this book a prophecy. 
All right, there's a third view. There's the idealist view, there's the preterist view, but there's also the historicist view. And this is what we would call not a no time or a past time, but we call a present time view. The historicist view says that uh, these events are being uh, fulfilled uh, during the course of 2,000 years in church history. The approach to interpreting Revelation uh, is really kind of interesting because uh, your interpretation is, is about as fluent as your imagination. Dr. John Walford, who was the president of Dallas Seminary when I was there, probably one of the greatest experts on end times theology in the 20th century, said so articulately, there is many interpretations by the historicists as there are historicists. And so depending on what time frame you are living in human history will determine how you will approach the Scripture. And so uh, they typically approach it from a perspective, the early historicists from Western Europe. So depending on what time frame, the locusts, for instance, during the time of the Reformation, where a number of the Reformers held this view, they said those were the monks and friars of the Roman Catholic Church. They saw Muhammad as the fallen star, Elizabeth I. The, Queen Elizabeth I is the first judgment bull. Adolf Hitler, they said, he's the rider on the red horse. And again, it really opens the scripture. And I might also add that virtually always when they take the historicist view, it's from the church in Western Europe, not the church in the rest of the world. So they ignore the church, say, in India and in Asia and, and, and what God is doing during that time frame. Who are some of the people who held the historicist view? Well, Luther and Calvin and Swingley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And central to the error, we will see, is what's called replacement theology that God is done with the people of Israel. I am so embarrassed, I've told you before, when I go into Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, because the first thing you see, the first exhibit you go to, they have Augustine and all of the hateful, anti-Semitic things he said about the Jewish people. It's embarrassing. And so replacement theology says God is done with the children of Israel. And so this view is very popular because if, if, if the book of Revelation is church history unfolding, then you kind of make it say what you want it to say. And so for the reformers, most of them said that the Pope was the Antichrist. I have in my hands the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you go to chapter 26, or chapter 25, section 6, it says, there is no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good statement. In no sense can the Pope in Rome be the head of it. That's a good statement. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of damnation, who glorifies himself and opposes himself and everything related to God. Now understand, it's possible that the coming man of sin, the man of lawlessness, is the Antichrist. But when they wrote this, the Westminster Confession of Faith, they said the Pope in their day was the Antichrist, that they were living during the Great Tribulation period. It was really a distortion of Scripture, and when they died, they found out they were wrong. Now, there's a fourth approach, the futurist approach, all right? Stay with me. There's the idealists. No time at all. The preterist, it's past. The historic, it's, it's present time. The futuristic approach. It takes the events of chapters 4 through 22 as being out in the future. 
and they interpret the scripture literally, much like Daniel literally interpreted the prophecy concerning the future of Jeremiah the prophet. So Revelation 13 describes a literal world empire in the future with a literal religious leader, with a literal coming antichrist, with a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus upon the earth. And it will follow by Jesus coming back to the earth where he will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. And again, I think one of the reasons God in this book gave us an outline to this book is so that we could not miss it. I mean, think about it. In chapter one, he gives an introduction and then there are just 12 verses in that first chapter that is describing the things that he has seen. And so he writes of that magnificent vision of the glorified Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, he writes about the things present of the seven churches that are functioning in John's day, 95 AD, when he writes the book. But then beginning in chapter 4, he writes about the things which shall take place after these things. Here's the point. 333 of the 404 verses of the Revelation concern the future. They haven't happened yet. And so the plain, literal, uh, normal approach to Scripture understands it that way. I mean, think about it. You have to really come up with some wacky views to say this has already happened in the past or it has happened already. When you look at the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments found in chapters 6, 8, and 16, nothing ever in the history of man has happened like that in chapters 6, 8, 9, and 16. Nothing ever. Um, not to mention, Jesus told the church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 that there's coming a time that will come upon the whole world. There's never been a time, even in the great world wars, that has ever encompassed the whole world. But listen, how were the prophecies for the first coming fulfilled? Literally, every prophecy. And for us to think that God is going to fulfill the prophecies for the second coming in a different way is, I think, to misinterpret the Bible. So futurists take what we call a literal plain interpretation of the Bible. They go back and they look at the original sense to the original audience in its historical context, and then they interpret it on that basis. Now, sometimes you will see people being interviewed on TV, and they'll ask a preacher like, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? And what they are typically really asking behind that question is, I don't want to take the Bible literally the host, because I don't like the literal moral dictates that it has on my life. And so, you know, there was a preacher being interviewed and asked, well, do you believe uh, in a literal interpretation? It was in the context of homosexuality. And what that interviewer was really saying is, I don't want to literally apply the moral dictates of Scripture to my life. If I want to literally get drunk and be gay or fornicate or commit adultery, I want to do that. So I don't literally interpret the Bible. Now, I don't think maybe the best word to use in our day because it is so misunderstood to say that we believe in a literal interpretation. Maybe it would be better to say we believe in a plain interpretation because the futurist who does literally interpret the Bible does not ignore figures of speech or symbols. Remember, this book was signified to us. It was given in signs. That's what he says in the opening verses. So it's important that when there is a sign, we understand the sign and then apply it accordingly. 
Now, the futurist view is a view that is, for the most part, taken by born-again Christians in this country, and it's almost the exclusive view by born-again Christians in other countries. And again, it's the only view, with the exception of origin, that the church fathers took. And those are the men, there's early and late church fathers, but all of the early church fathers said that Revelation 4 through the end of the book concerned the future. Why is that important? Because they lived closest to the apostles. They sat under their teaching. And so as a general rule of thumb, if it's new, it is not true. So the book of Revelation has to be understood. Symbols need to be recognized. And I told you one of the reasons it's a hard book to understand is because it's filled with Old Testament references. 300 of the 404 verses, some would say 600, 700, 800, and they're taking the same Old Testament passage that might be found in three or four different places, so they're double counting. But 300 of the 404 verses, that's 75% of the book, is from the Old Testament. And the challenge is, he never says Moses said, or David said, or, or Isaiah the prophet said. It's just woven like a beautiful mosaic. And it's great that God did this because you have all these Old Testament prophecies in the Old Testament. And in some prophets, you're not sure, well, does this happen before this? Or does this happen after this? But John takes all of these Old Testament references and he gives you the chronological order by um, writing the book in the way the Holy Spirit allowed him to write it. So it's important that you understand the Old Testament. 24 different Old Testament books are quoted in the Revelation. Um, So key is understanding the symbols, and key to understanding most of the symbols, if it's not interpreted directly in the text, is to go back to the Old Testament. So when someone says to me, well, Pastor Carl, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? My answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense, if it's a symbol, I recognize it's a symbol. Then I try to interpret the symbol, letting Scripture interpret the Scripture. And then when I understand what the symbol means, I literally believe it. So when the Bible says that Satan is a great red dragon, it's describing his cruel and hateful and vicious nature. Uh, Somebody might say, well, that's only a symbol, so he's not literally a cruel red dragon, so there must be no devil. No, 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 no. You understand what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. So key to understanding Revelation is, number one, key is to understand the Old Testament, but also to understand that the principles that God, the promises that God made to Israel, and we'll spend some time on this, are unconditional. God is not done with the Jewish people. Now, unfortunately, at least in the American church, the popular view, because there's a lot of Reformed guys like Alistair Begg and John Piper and on and on the list would go, R.C. Sproul, who think that God is done with Israel. He is not done with Israel. God is going to fulfill human history through Israel. Just as he brought the first coming of Messiah through Israel, he's going to bring the second coming of Christ through Israel. Now look at verse 2 of Revelation 6. That was a rabbit trail, I know. (laughs) I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. So when we read this verse and we ask, well, who is this rider? And what is the seal judgment that he brings? Well, it all depends on how you interpret Revelation. If you take the allegorical approach, you can make it to be whatever you want it to be. Uh, The Mormons are known for allegorizing the Bible. And so they say these seven seals represent 7,000-year time frames in human history to make some of their cultist false doctrines work. If you're a preterist, 
uh, and say it was all history and all fulfilled before 70 AD. They take the first horsemen to be the Parthian warriors because the Parthians were known for riding on white horses. And they say, well, this happened when the leader of the Parthians came on his white horse and he tried to make an attempt against Rome in 62 AD. Well, the historicists, he says, whatever basically he wants it to mean in his time frame in human history. So I, I, I really can't spend much time on it because there's so many different positions. But the modern day historicist, for instance, says the white horse represents military victory. When God re- removes the, the rider on the red horse and, and uh, in the red horse is the rise of communism and on and on and on it goes. Again, the problem with this is Jesus is going to give us the key to interpreting Revelation. So you got to stay with me. We're going to spend five or six sermons just in chapter six. And the key to understanding so that you can see so clearly is to see how Jesus understood Revelation ever before it was written. And he gives you the schematic for the events in the Revelation and the Olivet Discourse. So we'll come to that. Now, here's a picture slide so you don't get lost in the weeds. All right, remember, the rapture of the church is a little space of time there between the rapture and the start of the seven years. We don't know if it's weeks, days, or months, but it appears to be short because we saw in the opening of the book that the events are going to happen very quickly, very suddenly. So it appears to be a very short time. But this seven-year period, Revelation and Daniel alike and Jesus divides it into two halves, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. So these four horsemen of the apocalypse, in fact, the first six seals all happen in the first half of the tribulation. Then an event will happen right dead center, as Jesus will point out. It's called the abomination of desolation when Antichrist claims to be God. And then the great tribulation period you begin to have great, great, great tribulation like you've never seen. Now, when we look at these first six seals, they're going to be chilling. But they won't even begin to compare with the trumpet and the bold judgments that are going to follow. So, now let me just say for a moment, there are a few people who are futurists who still literally interpret it but they take the first horse still to be the preaching of the gospel through Christ and his church. And so it's not a matter of how to interpret the scripture. Maybe it's more of a matter of how carefully to interpret the scripture. So I want you to see that these riders are very different. And so most who take a futuristic approach say this first rider is the Antichrist. Hold your finger here and go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Let me read something to you over in the 19th chapter. Revelation chapter 19. It is describing the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It's describing that time when Jesus will come again on a white horse. I I think Dr. Billy Graham was absolutely correct some 30 years ago when he wrote the book, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. He saw it all being out in the future and that this rider was not indeed Jesus. Look at the, look at the description of Jesus. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. There's no slides here. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. 
And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, by the way, that's us, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Now bring up the next chart. It begins to show the differences between these two riders. If you read the two passages and put them side by side, you discover that the rider in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2 has a bow. And the Lord Jesus, by the way, whom no one debates, is the rider in chapter 19, really the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. He has a sharp sword coming from his mouth. He is coming to conquer the enemies of God. Now, both are on a white horse, but the weapons are different. This man has a bow, and you'll see a lot of artwork on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The most carefully done ones show a bow only and no arrow. Some of them show a man with an arrow. He doesn't have any arrows. He has a bow only. Remember, the Bible teaches he is coming as a man of peace. And so while he has a bow in which to threaten people by with the threat of war, he is going to come as a man of peace. Basically, he says, look, I have a gun, but I don't need any bullets in it. He's a deceiver. And of course, the world is going to fall into the devil's trap. Paul, speaking of this time frame, said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, while they are saying peace and safety, and that's what they are going to be saying at the start of the tribulation when this man comes to the forefront. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. What I'm wanting you to see as we go through this chart is there are huge contrasts between the two riders. And this rider in Revelation 6 is a deceiver. He's an imposter. He's not Christ. He's Antichrist. Now, beyond the weapon, think about the crown of the white horse rider. Think about the crown that he has. Uh, here on the chart, as you can see, not only are their weapons different, but their crowns are different. Verse 2 says, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And so here on the chart, you have a crown, and it's not the same kind of crown that Jesus has. Number one, it's singular. It's the Greek word Stephanus. It was the crown that was given to the athlete, a, a, a laurel wreath that would go on his head that would wither and dry up. Whereas Jesus is not wearing a crown, a Stephanus. He is wearing a, he's wearing diadems. Some of your translations say crowns, plural. Uh, the King James and the Net renders it that way, but the New American Standard and the ESV, they don't really interpret the word as they transliterate the word. The word is diadema, and it's in the plural because they want to underscore the literal importance that he is wearing a different kind of crown than the one that the Antichrist has. He's wearing the crown of a king, and it's not one crown, it's a plurality of crowns. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Third, let's think about the influence, the influence of the white horse rider. Not only are their weapons different, and their crowns are different, but the length of their influence is very, very different. Again, here on the chart, the influence of the Antichrist is a man of peace is for three and a half years, but it's a false peace. It's the peace before the coming storm, and the storm will culminate with the battle of the Armageddon. But the world will be so desperate 
for a solution to the world's crises, that they will not heed the warning of the Bible, and they will want peace at any price. It reminds me in many ways of what took place during the Second World War with Adolf Hitler. In an effort to have peace, Neville Chamberlain went to Hitler, and Hitler signed a contract saying, we will not harm England, we will not destroy you, and Neville Chamberlain came back to parades of cheering people across the British Isles, thanking him for what he had done, and they were convinced that Hitler would not touch them. They were all convinced, except one person. Winston Churchill, and Churchill said he was a snake preparing to strike. Now, the Bible teaches that he will come with words. We studied him in the prophet Daniel. Really, more is said about the Antichrist and the prophet Daniel than in any other book in all of the Bible. We saw he's Mr. Big Mouth. He comes with words of great boasting and arrogance. He's braggadocious. But not only will he come with big words, he will come with great power. Paul, in describing him, 2 Thessalonians 2, Coming, his coming, he says, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Three words describe him, power, signs, false wonders. Three words describe the Lord Jesus. Listen to Acts 2.22, Peter's preaching, men of Israel, Listen to these words. Jesus and Nazarene, a man attested to you with powers. Duna may say, same word. We get our word dynamite from it. Wonders, signs, same Greek words, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Paul, in describing the Antichrist, uses the same three words. Power. He comes with great power. We get our word dynamite from it. The Antichrist is going to come with incredible power. He's going to come with Simeon signs. It's, it's a Greek word that describes a, a, a miracle with a message behind it. It's John's favorite word for miracles. He's going to do miracles, but behind the miracles, he's going to have false teaching. A man is not a man of God just because he does a miracle. There are going to be many false Christs who are going to come and teach all kinds of wrong things, but they will have miracles associated with them. And people assume because they are miracles, they are men of God. Listen, the devil can imitate virtually anything. And wonders, it's the Greek word for miracles, teros, that describes a sense of absolute awe. And the awe is going to be so great, most of the world will worship this man. So we read here in 2 Thessalonians verse 10, with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish, why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. You have an opportunity to be saved today. If you're not, you're in big trouble. Because when the Antichrist comes, because you did not receive the truth so as to be saved, you will believe the lie. So listen, the white horse suggests a counterfeit of Christ. And he tries to counterfeit Christ. And so think about it. We live in an unparalleled time in human history were the threats of terrorism and nuclear proliferation and all kinds of things. What one nation can do, it can infect the entire world. And the world, at this time in human history, out there in the future, is going to be so desperate for someone to step up to the plate and lead them and to rescue them from the disasters that are happening upon the earth that they will embrace this false man of God, this Antichrist. 
Now, he rules for three and a half years, and in the end, the world is brought into the battle of Armageddon. But what about Christ's rule? It's so different. Revelation 20, verse 4, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their right hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. When Jesus comes, he will have a thousand-year rule upon the earth, and that thousand-year rule where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven will turn into the eternal reign of his kingdom that will never end. Now, I'm almost done. Beyond the weapon, the crown, the influence, let's think for a moment about the title of the white horse rider, the title. Not only their weapons, crowns, and influence is very different, but the titles they own are quite different. Verse 2, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it. The ESV and the RSV says it's rider, it's interpretive, but literally it says he who sat on it. And again, this chart shows the comparison between Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. In Revelation 6, he's called a rider or he who sat on it, couldn't fit it all in. Or in Revelation 19, he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He who sat on it is faithful and true. This is a different person. He is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And by the way, when we get to that chapter, I will point out to you, that is the exact same title that is given to God the Father. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And so appropriate because to see Jesus is to see the Father. And so the first rider brings nothing but trouble. The second rider will bring nothing but blessing. The first rider will bring in the great tribulation period. The second rider will bring in God's millennial kingdom upon the earth. And we will see when we study this along with the Olivet Discourse that the two passages perfectly reflect one another. Now, why study all this? Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed, blessed, is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. God wants to bless you. And I want to tell you, if you will stick with me through the revelation, you are going to experience a level of blessing like you've never known. Because God, I believe when you understand revelation rightly, it will change your life. God is not trying to give you some schematic of the future. He is not trying to make you a more intelligent sinner. He is trying to make you more like Jesus Christ. So how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications this morning as we close in the form of a question. Number one, which rider are you identifying with? Would 666 the Antichrist or the number of Messiah 777? Are you investing in the temporary kingdom of the Antichrist that is like a Stephanus that is fading away and withering? Or are you investing in the diadems of the Messiah of Jesus Christ whose kingdom is forever and ever? The apostle John wrote these words in his first letter, children, it is the last hour. By the way, we've been in the last hour since the day of Pentecost. We've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. 
because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. Now, there is another term called the latter days. That refers to the end of time, but the last days began with Pentecost. Nothing ever in the history of the church has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back. But we are seeing prophecy being fulfilled in our day for the second coming that reminds you that the rapture that precedes the second coming is all that much closer. So which kingdom are you identifying with? Children, it's the last hour, just as you've heard that Antichrist, that one world leader is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know it's the last hour. God said it through many of the apostles in the New Testament, that as soon as the ascension would take place, there would be a false sowing of seeds, people who are against Christ, and the spirit of Antichrist has been at work. But I want to tell you, the spirit of Antichrist that has been at work for 2,000 years... There's coming a day when the spirit of Antichrist will literally embody himself in a human ruler. Now, coming events typically cast their shadows. Coming events typically cast their shadows. And so it's not surprising to me to see what we are seeing going on in our world today. The Holy Spirit who is restraining sin, he is going to ultimately remove that restraint. When we study these first four seals, when we study the first six seals, we're going to see they happen all in the first three and a half years. The birth pangs haven't even started yet, but to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And I think God is allowing us to see in our world that there's a real pregnancy and the birth pangs are going to start maybe before we realize. I I went to a couple of different websites this week, you know, CNN, Fox News, all that. Here's some of the headlines just in the last eight days. Trans inmate wins the right to move to prison for women. Violence flares in Caracas as currency meltdown continues. Four Americans sprayed an acid attack in France. Mexico murders up with the deadliest month in 20 years due to drug war. Chemical expert fears terrorists could release black death in cities. Jihadist eye train derailments and food poisoning. Threat level in London critical. Kim threatens to turn USA into a sea of flames. Hawaii prepares for nuclear attack from North Korea. California Inman calls on Allah to annihilate Jews. 60% of Americans want cannabis legalized. India and China locked in eyeball-to-eyeball border standoff. Woman fired for voting against same-sex marriage. That woman was in Australia, 18 years old. It's made international news. Her boss found out that she voted against same-sex marriage, and so he fired her. And her mother wrote us this week, thanking us for the training she had in this church to be able to stand for Jesus Christ. Cell phone bomb found in passenger luggage, and on and on and on we could go. The spirit of Antichrist is at work. And he has a temporal kingdom. But 777 has an eternal kingdom. So which kingdom are you investing in? Are you investing in a withering crown? What will the end of your life be like when your kids are there and, and they've got to move you to some place? And you, what are they going to do with all your stuff? When we had to move my mother into another place, her and my dad lived in a home for 50 years, and we had a house with four floors filled with stuff. What do we do with it? None of us wanted it. We had our own stuff. 
What are you going to do with it? What kind of a kingdom are you really investing in? Secondly, are you resting in the sovereignty of God as he rules this world? Sometimes I think, my, how much the world has changed for evil since our family began in 1980. Our family began the day we got married. Children is not the start of a family. That's the growth of a family. And God gave us five children. And I thought, what a different world it is now for my grandchildren to be raised into. But while the world is very different, this is still my father's world. He is still sovereignly in control. In verse 2, it says, a crown was given Ditto me. It was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. In verse 4, when we come to it, and another, a red horse went out into him who sat on it. It was granted. Same word, ditto me. It was given to him to take peace from the earth. Verse 8, I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades. Authority was ditto me, given to them over a fourth of the earth. All the way, whether it's the seal or the trumpet or the bold judgments, they come from the hand of a sovereign God. Satan is not in charge. As Luther used to rightly and correctly say, the devil is God's devil. He can't do anything that God does not allow. And so God allows these four horsemen to be released, but they are on God's leash. God is sovereign. Rest in that sovereignty. Third and finally, Will you receive Christ or will you be deceived by any Christ? Your decision today is very important. I hope you do not leave without an assurance that if the next minute you died or the trumpet sounded for the church, that you would go to heaven. You need to settle that issue. When God's redeemed are caught up into heaven and praising and worshiping there in the throne room of God, where will you be? If you don't know Jesus, more than likely, you will be taking the mark of the Antichrist. It's up to you, and it's all dependent on what you do with Jesus. Because what you do with Jesus will determine in the end what God will do with you. You confess Him, He'll confess you. You deny Him, He'll deny you. You receive Him, He will receive you. So it's very important that you deal with this one who is called the Christ, Jesus. He's not an antichrist. He is the Christ. And someday every knee and every tongue will acknowledge that. Now, Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank You for unfolding for us the future that You have not only given us the start of time, but You show us how it will all end in the very end of time. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who is uncertain of their salvation. Help them to see. I pray that Jesus paid it all, that He died completely and wholly for all of their sin, that if they will call upon His name and put their faith, their confidence, their trust in His death and resurrection to change them and to forgive them, that You said You would do it. Help someone in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, we know as we move to the end of the age, your word is so plain, things will not get better, they will get worse. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and please guard us that we might not become part of this lukewarm age for Christ. 
Help us not to identify in the temporalness of the kingdom of the Antichrist, but help us to identify with the Lord Jesus and His eternal kingdom. Help us to see the things that are not seen that are eternal. Help us to invest in the things that really, truly matter. And we ask it for the glory of Jesus and in His holy name. Amen.